This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Honor the victims, celebrate the heroes. That's Genius Book Publishing's approach to true crime. Covering some of the most important cases in crime worldwide, our books never glorify the killers. From the Melissa Witt case all the way to the Golden State Killer and the Zodiac, if you're looking for solid, meticulously researched, thrilling true crime, look no further than Genius Book Publishing's catalog of titles. Visit GeniusTrueCrime.com for the best true crime books available. Also available on Amazon, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, and iTunes. Hi, I'm Alicia Lockhart. And I'm LaDonna Humphrey. We're the co-hosts of the Deep Dark Secrets podcast. We have some really exciting news to share with you. This May, we're headed to True Crime Fest Northwest Arkansas. That's right, I'm so excited. True Crime Fest Northwest Arkansas is happening on May 20th in Rogers, Arkansas. And we're gonna be joining podcasters like Katherine Townsend, Crawl Space, and True Crime Garage, and others to share stories of the missing and murdered, and to reflect on the heroes that are fighting to bring awareness to victims across the United States. True Crime Fest Northwest Arkansas promises to be an exciting event that supports a great cause. All the ticket sales benefit All the Lost Girls, which is a nonprofit founded in honor of Melissa Witt. We hope you'll make plans to come see us and all of the other amazing advocates that are fighting for justice. For more information and to get your tickets, visit allthelostgirls.org. We'll see you there at True Crime Fest. Lockhart. And I'm LaDonna Humphrey. Welcome to Deep Dark Secrets, the podcast that shines a light in some incredibly dark places. Yeah, we do. Ugh, get your lanterns, people. You're going to need them today, my friends. Yes, you are, because we're going to discuss a very famous case surrounding a man who was consumed by his lust for cannibalism and necrophilia. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to cover the case of serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. Dahmer remains one of the most discussed serial killers of all time, and we knew we couldn't leave him out of our coverage of death fetish murders. Yeah, I know that there's going to be some people that are like, oh, come on, Dahmer? Everyone's covered Dahmer, but how could we not? Dahmer's killing spree spanned over three decades, and it included necrophilia, dismemberment, cannibalism, and pornography. So we have to. Dahmer loved to take disgusting photos of his helpless victims. So he's a part of the death fetish community and he has to be talked about. He absolutely does. So buckle up and let's dive in as Alicia and I give you a glimpse into the world of Jeffrey Dahmer. We're going to set the stage. Dahmer was convicted of murdering 17 men 
and boys, too, young boys, between the years of 1978 and 1991. His murders involve cannibalism, necrophilia, and also, oddly, the collection and preservation of body parts, especially preservation of the skeleton. For whatever reason, Dahmer was incredibly interested in preserving a skeleton. And, I mean, it's weird, but Dahmer was just anything but normal. He was disgusting is what he was. And he was living out this death fetish fantasy, you know, really before those death fetish forums became popular or even existed. His work is almost a precursor to everything that we talk about later. But he was definitely a fetisher, don't you think? Yeah, he was a pioneer of the death fetish community. Oh, you got that right, for sure. When he was finally arrested in 1991, authorities found not one, not two, not three, but four. Four severed heads in his refrigerator. Four severed heads, Alicia. He would have been like besties with Armin Muse on the Cannibal Cafe forum. Oh, he for sure would have. I mean, I just... I'm not laughing because I think that it's funny. I'm laughing because I deal with these heavy topics with dark humor. So I have to ask you this. Do you know if he also kept food in his fridge as well as the severed heads? Yes, he did. I mean, he did. And I just can actually imagine him unloading his groceries from Walmart or the local grocery store and having to scoot a severed head over on the bottom shelf to make room for his milk. That's the reality of a fetisher. It is. And I know that what he did was horrific, and it's not funny at all. But I think that's the reality, and people need to understand that this was just, like, normal for people that are into death fetish. I mean, it's just normal for them to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to scoot the body part over in the fridge to make room for my eggs. It just is what it is. Yeah, it's apparent to me that the people in this community believe that their fetish is normal. And so I think that that's what leads me to imagine these type of things. But it is true. I mean, he wasn't just using that refrigerator for body parts. Dahmer was also just living in this apartment and using that fridge and other things in his apartment like it was no big deal to him. This was just part of his life. And so I wonder if our listeners know that severed heads aren't the only disturbing things that Dahmer is known for. I feel like people know quite a bit about Dahmer, but they may not know all of it. And so just in case they don't know, let's give them a rundown of some of the other disgusting things that we know he did. I'll go first. So Dahmer drilled a hole in one victim's head. And this is hard to even say, but he used a turkey baster to put acid directly onto the brain. And he was doing this because he wanted to create a sex zombie. That is so weird. It's very strange. And this poor man that he was experimenting on like this somehow did survive. And he survived through that strange experiment. And so Dahmer went on to strangle him. Wow. I actually didn't know this. So that kind of shocks me. And that's horrible. Where did he get the idea? Do we know about his sex zombie? I'm not sure, but I think it really illustrates the point that this was a sexual experience for him to be torturing and murdering people. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay, well, I've got one. Dahmer used a meat tenderizer to prepare a piece of one victim's heart. And he's later quoted as describing that the taste of the heart, well, it tasted like beef. Again, total cannibal cafe vibes here. This is 
taken me back to a few weeks ago when we were talking about the cannibal kidnappers, the cannibal cafe, Arm and Muse, the willing victims. This is crazy to me because I've known about Dahmer almost my whole life. I remember it was one of the first true crime things I ever heard about, like in middle school. So it's really weird to be at this point where like I hadn't really put it together yet that he was a death fetisher. I think that when Dahmer was arrested, I'm trying to think back, I was a senior in high school and I didn't remember hearing just a lot about it then. I think it was probably after I actually graduated that I learned more about it and just being horrified that this guy was a cannibal. And that's really like the first time I understood what cannibalism was is because of the Jeffrey Dahmer case, if you can believe that. Well, there's just so much to unpack with him, too. I watched the recent Netflix release about him, and it was really then when I watched that that I was like, oh, oh, he's a fetisher. There was a lot of pleasure happening here for him. But I've got another one. So Dahmer would cut off his victim's hands and then put those in the deep freezer. Oh, well, that kind of leads into mine. It's just gross to think about. But Dahmer bought a huge, and I mean giant, freezer to put in his apartment so he could keep the remains of his victims in it. I know he was a cannibal, but when I think about, you know, cutting off someone's hands or just storing people in the freezer, that has to be for the purpose of cannibalism. But also, I mean, just as a trophy as well, it just it's so sick to think about him just surrounded by all these different body parts. Well, and I got to thinking about, you know, he lived in this apartment, this shanty apartment building. And if you remember from the Netflix series, it really focused on the neighbor who was suspicious of him, right? And I think I would have been that neighbor because I would be wondering why my next door neighbor was hauling in a giant ass freezer. Like, why do you need a freezer that big in this little bitty apartment? I've never lived in an apartment and seen somebody with a giant deep freezer. Me either. And I've lived in apartments before. And I would certainly have been suspicious if someone was dragging in something like that. But that's just me. I mean, and, and who's to say that she wasn't? I mean, this this neighbor was pretty vocal and was always calling the police. I don't know. Maybe she did call about the giant deep freeze. But I think it's interesting because that's definitely premeditation right there. Oh, for sure. And Dahmer was actually really methodical in the way that he sought out victims and killed them. And for sure, a fetisher, if you think about it, he was mixing sex and death all the time. And he was using sex to gain access to the ability to kill people. So he would go to different gay bars, malls, bus stops, and lure people back to his home by flirting with them and promising them money or sex. And he even would ask people to model for him. And so it just, as you always say, LaDonna, it just smacks of death fetish. It's so interwoven. He was fetisher. He was sexually aroused by death. He was tricking innocent, vulnerable people, being really flirtatious with them and offering them money to get them in a private area so that he could act out his fantasies. Well, it makes me think of many of the death fetish producer predators that we know about, Alicia. I mean, they do some of the same things. They're luring 
you know, their models with promises of a better life and money and this and that and the other. And really, they're just leading them into a horrific experience. So it's like Dahmer was the pioneer for even death fetish producing almost. Mm -hmm. He was absolutely taking pictures of people and asking them to model and then murdering them. Yeah, it was a really, really, really horrific setup. And not only that, he would also provide his victims with alcohol that he would lace with drugs. And that would kill them, typically. And after the victims would die, Dahmer would have sex with their bodies and then dismember them. Right there in his apartment. And sometimes he would keep their body parts. He would keep things like their skulls or their genitals. And he kept them as souvenirs. It's just gross. And then he would discard their bones in a 57-gallon drum that was bought for the purpose of disposing the evidence. And he had filled that drum, I believe, with acid, if I recall correctly. And I'm thinking, how the hell do you get a 57-gallon drum up to your apartment and not garner some attention from the neighborhood? He was shameless, just doing what he wanted to do, not a care in the world. And I am so sad that it took so long for him to get arrested. There were so many people that lost their lives. And he was just so bold about what he was doing. And when he was arrested, police went through his apartment and found all of those things that we mentioned. But they also found some neatly wrapped strips of human flesh inside his refrigerator. So he was spending a lot of time dismembering and saving body parts, but also just doing strange things with them. Was he keeping that flesh so he could cook it? I would assume so. It reminds me of when you chop up veggies or you do food prep. Like he was making these thin strips and keeping them. And who knows? I mean, we can assume that he was doing that to cook something with them or like to wrap a food item with them. It's just so sick. Yeah, like human flesh fajitas. I think that's the kind of things he was doing. I have a hard time talking about this guy. He was really, really disgusting. And it's just scary to think all these people that live next door to him that were neighbors to this kind of atrocity. I just, I feel so bad. I can't imagine how traumatizing this was for them to then later get all of these gory details. But the gory details just kind of keep on coming because it was discovered that as a teenager, I think kind of what started all this for Dahmer is that he would collect roadkill, often with his dad, and he would strip the flesh and keep the bones. He was always doing these weird experimental things on roadkill. And I think in some way it was to keep his mind occupied because I think his dad knew that there was something off about Jeffrey. And I think this helped with that obsession that he clearly had for death. You know, I know the Netflix series goes into more detail about the roadkill and the things that were happening with that, but I did read a lot about that in this case and just how that seemed to be a catalyst for everything that Jeffrey would go on to do later. There are people who are very skilled at taxidermy or preserving anatomical specimens and things like I find myself to be one of those people that I see beauty in the structure of just the human form or animal forms. Like I just think it's amazing. Every piece of life has this perfectly designed body for whatever species it is. 
And I can see an appreciation there for those things and for taxidermy being some sort of an art form. People preserve pets for people or just for scientific reasons have specimens. But I think that the way that Jeffrey Dahmer was going about this hobby was telling. He was even picking up neighbors' pets and killing them. And sometimes he would decapitate a creature and place the animal's head on a stick and like move it around and play with it. And he loved to impale live frogs. So I feel like there's a bit of a difference even how he was going about these morbid art forms. It's just utterly disgusting. And I know we could go on and on and on, but I think the listeners get the idea. Jeffrey Dahmer was a freaky freak of a death fetish predator. I mean, there's no two ways about it. He was definitely into death and sex, and he was preying on people in his community. It's mind-blowing. This case just really has kept me up as we researched it. Like I said, I did know some things about it, but then as I dive in, I start realizing, well, this is why people were so shocked after his arrest, because nobody had ever seen anything like this on a national scale, because this became national news really, really quick. And I think people are shocked by the realities of his crime, even still. Even though you know that it happened, oh yeah, he was a cannibal. But when you like dive into the details, I don't know, Alicia, it's hard for me to even wrap my head around. He was just depraved. He really was. And I think that it's important for us to cover him as somebody who is a death fetisher, because this is an example, like you said, that made national news of a person who clearly had a death fetish. And this is what he chose to do with his time because he was allowed to go unchecked for many, many, many years, even though there were lots of red flags. Absolutely. And I think that because it became national news and that everything was just so out there for the public to know that by the time it was you know, set for him to go to trial on all those things, and I believe that was in January of 92, authorities then had to implement some serious security measures because it was so popular. This case was so shocking and popular and people were following it and he was receiving death threats, as you can imagine, and all the things. And so one example of what happened because of that is they actually had to protect him as a death fetish predator, actually. And they had to put up this eight foot barrier of bulletproof glass and it was constructed to separate him from the gallery, you know, the rest of the courtroom because they didn't want anybody to kill him. They wanted to make sure that he answered for his crimes. But that's how much of a national sensation this case became in the early 90s. So this might be kind of twisted of me, but as I listen to you saying this, I'm like, where are those people right now? Everybody should be outraged about death fetish pornography and people who have death fetishes who are wandering the earth free to roam and do as they please. And I think that's an appropriate response. People should be outraged by these kinds of crimes. That's a good question. And it's interesting that you ask that because I just spoke to a group a couple of nights ago here in Arkansas. I got invited to come and speak about our book Strangled, Alicia. And this group of people, there were a lot of them there, and they were really, really interested in learning more about death fetish. And after it was over, most of them stayed after to be able to talk to me a little bit one-on-one. -on -one. And what I heard 
again and again and again was that they just didn't realize that death fetish was a thing. They didn't know. They knew that there was violent pornography, but they did not know that there was the actual glorification of the murder of women and that there were websites dedicated to strangling and drowning and crucifixion and shooting and all the things. And I could tell that this group was outraged and that they were grateful to be educated on this topic and that they were going to go out and tell other people. And so I think what it comes down to is that you don't know what you don't know. And I don't think the world realizes that this shit exists. I really don't. And I think that's what makes this work so important is because we need to expose it. Yeah, I don't think it's a far cry to say that if you let these death fetish predators continue on in the world, you're going to see some more Dahmers in the future. So this is a lesson to everybody right now. Share this podcast with people that you think don't know about this because it's very dark and hard to hear. But it's important that everybody knows about this because we don't want another Dahmer in the world. Dahmer was seriously mentally ill. Yeah, for sure. And according to reports, he suffered from borderline personality disorder. He had a psychotic disorder. He was also diagnosed with schizopersonality disorder. So those are some really significant mental illnesses. And despite all of that, they went ahead and declared legally that he was sane enough to withstand trial. Oh, wow. And I understand why they did that. I mean, Mm -hmm. there was some things that I read about that actually a couple of weeks ago that he was very methodical in how he organized his apartment as like a killing machine almost. And he was very methodical in how he lured people back to his apartment. And so that had a lot to do with him being declared legally sane to withstand trial because he knew what he was doing. There was no confusion there. He was very serious about bringing those men back to his apartment so he could sexually exploit them and then eventually eat them. Yeah, I'm glad that they did go ahead and make that call so that they could appropriately charge him. It would have been horrific if he got some sort of lesser sentence due to these mental issues that he had. But this made it hard for his defense team. So they really had to do the unthinkable and go down a path of sharing every single gory detail of the crimes that he committed. I guess just hoping that by sharing this information, the jury would find him to just be totally insane. But it didn't work out that way. The jury was horrified by the heinous crimes that Dahmer committed. And they went ahead and just found him guilty on all counts very, very quickly. It only took them five hours of deliberation. That's fast, really. Yeah, they sentenced Dahmer to 16 life sentences. They went hard for him. Well, they needed to. I mean, he just destroyed so many lives and traumatized a nation. I can't ever remember hearing about cannibalism really prior to this case. I think this was the first time that people would actually talk about it. This impacted the world in a way that we never saw coming. I don't think anybody at that point could have ever imagined that a Jeffrey Dahmer existed. And I found that fascinating because I start thinking through what I remember as a young adult about the Jeffrey Dahmer case and then just what I saw in the Netflix series. And so 
when you and I decided that we wanted to talk about Dahmer this season, I decided to do like a deep dive into research about his childhood. And I really wanted to know more about his life up until the murders began. Yeah. That was intriguing to me. And I was mainly curious what, if any, childhood trauma that he experienced, maybe that could account for why his life took such a dark and twisted turn. And really what I found is that Dahmer was pretty much described as this energetic and happy child until about, I guess it was the age of four. And that's when he had a surgery that was performed, I guess, to repair a double hernia that he had. According to reports and to his family and to psychologists and to law enforcement and to everybody that's in the know, Dahmer was never the same after that surgery. Something changed in his brain after that surgery. And I think that is fascinating. It really is. And it's a little confusing, too, because I had read a bit about that, too. I found that when I was researching. And like you said, they talk about how he was noticeably different and he became increasingly withdrawn following the birth of his younger brother. And um, also, it seemed like his family moving a lot, changing locations, had some sort of effect on him. But when, like, going back to that moment, the surgery, it's interesting because it's a double hernia. It's not up near his brain or anything. So it's interesting that that changed him so profoundly, according to his family's accounts. They also said that by his early teens that he was disengaged. They noticed him just being tense. He didn't have very many friends either. And Dahmer himself claims that his compulsions towards necrophilia and murder began around that time, like around 14 years old. Oh, wow. That's a pretty common age range that we hear about. That's definitely commonality that we've heard with other fetishers. Yeah. A lot of people in the death fetish forums will talk about when their fantasies started to take over their lives. And most of them say it came on really strong. Sometime between 10 and 15 is pretty normal for a death fetisher to start having really persistent thoughts about death fetish and to become aroused and I kind of wonder if this has something to do with puberty as well, like it's already in there and then that sex drive starts to become a thing and then it's over. I think that's very possible. And all the changes that your body's going through and all the chemical changes, like in your brain, I just think that definitely that does have a profound impact on the outcome of what happens with these fetishers. Also, since we're kind of digging into what the factors were that could have created a person like this, it is important to point out that Dahmer's mother had a history of mental illness. And Dahmer was a victim of childhood sexual abuse from a neighbor. That's sad. That is sad. That's a lot of factors, I think, that could go into what happened. And I found in research, too, that there was some speculation by psychologists that the breakdown of Dahmer's parents' marriage and that subsequent divorce a few years later could have been the catalyst that turned those dark fantasies into actions. And that's just from like anger and depression and all of those things that can happen to a kiddo dealing with and grieving the breakup of their family. But I read six or seven different reports about Dahmer and in each of those reports and in the research that went into those reports, the divorce was mentioned repeatedly. So apparently that was a factor that he must have talked with psychologists about and how traumatized he was because of that. 
It's interesting with mental health how sometimes the triggering event or the catalyst isn't what you think it would be or it isn't as intense as you think it would be. It goes to show that our mental health can be really fragile sometimes. Sometimes an event will just hit you sideways and open up a huge can of worms that's been inside you for a while. And as we look at the factors here and we realize that he can identify a desire for necrophilia and these twisted fantasies around age 14, it definitely does remind me of these other death fetishers in the forums. And so, of course, we had to look just for any evidence that he maybe could have been in any of these death fetish forums. But I personally didn't find anything. Were you able to find anything? LaDonna, that would indicate that he was in the forums we're looking at now? No, I didn't find anything like that. I mean, Dahmer's murders began around the time the internet was just becoming popular. So while it's possible he was involved in those communities online, I just can't find any evidence of that at all. But what I did find was that by the time of his first killing, Dahmer was an alcoholic. His alcohol consumption was just out of control. It was ridiculous addiction. And so he ended up dropping out of Ohio State University, I think after like one quarter term. And then he had to deal with the fact that his recently remarried father. So that seemed to be a reoccurring theme there that Dahmer talked about was that his father had gotten remarried. I think that was very hurtful to him. And I just wanted to mention that because I read that over and over and over in my research. And his dad insisted that after all these other life changes that were happening, that Dahmer enlist in the army. And I think mm-hmm. that that was like his dad's way of getting him help because he knew there were issues. I mean, he knew that he was an alcoholic and he knew all these other things. And I think that there was a mindset back then that the army could fix that for you. Oh, like the army could straighten him out. That's exactly right. Dahmer enlisted in the army, I believe it was like late December of 1978. And he ended up being posted to Germany pretty quickly after that. And that's where his drinking problem just blew up even more. And it became so bad and he was doing all kinds of crazy things in the army that I won't even get into today. They ended up discharging him from the army in like, I think it was early 1981. And There was so many things that happened, like I mentioned, that German authorities would later begin to investigate any possible connection between Dahmer and some murders that took place in the area during that time. Oh, that's creepy. I think that's pretty interesting. It's not believed that he took any more victims while serving in the armed forces, but they're not sure. And so they had to look into that. And so there's like two schools of thought. Oh, we got to research it. We don't think he did it, but we can't say for sure. Does that make sense? I mean, nobody knows for certain. Only Jeffrey would have the answer to that. Yeah, that makes sense. I think they had to look into it, though, because his desires and actions are just so extreme. Yeah, and his behavior was so erratic. Yes, exactly. And so he gets discharged from the Army and he returns home to Ohio. And things just didn't go well after that. He ends up getting arrested a year later for disorderly conduct, and that prompted his father to send Dahmer off to live with his grandmother in Wisconsin. And again, this was another opportunity for Jeffrey's father to intervene and get him some help, like he did before when he sent him off to the army. This time he sent him off to grandma, you know, like grandma boot camp. And (laughs) it didn't help. 
because his alcohol problem just continued to grow. It was worse and worse and worse. And eventually he got arrested that following summer for indecent exposure. Things were starting to become very sexually motivated for him. He was wanting to show it off to people for whatever reason. And then he gets arrested again in like 1986, I believe. And that's when two boys, two young boys, accuse him of masturbating in front of them. There we go again. We have pedophilia and death fetish side by side. Yeah. And he only received like a one-year probationary sentence for that crime. Like he takes his wiener out in front of these two young boys and he masturbates and they only give him a year of probation. That is awful. That that is the 80s, sadly. It is. But I think in this day and age, he would be charged pretty heftily with like a sexual offense. So they could have got him then and they didn't. And then after that, everything spiraled out of control from that point. And that's what led up to these tragic serial killings. And I just add this, there were tons of red flags that nobody did a damn thing about. Yeah, it's really tragic to hear all these, it's almost like fork in the road points where he maybe could have been taken in to get some mental health care or had some time in jail where he would have maybe had access to somebody who really could have died, how big the issues were for him. It's really scary to realize this. There are death fetish predators just like Jeffrey Dahmer everywhere, and they are always watching and waiting for their next opportunity to kill an innocent victim. And their crimes are so sexually motivated and this just pairing of sex and death and sometimes pedophilia is so disturbing but this is happening still now there are people out there just like Dahmer they're everywhere and it's eye-opening to talk about these things with you and I hope that our listeners feel the same way I hope that they're being educated on things that they didn't know about before and maybe the realities of what leads people into this I think what is so important is that the work we're doing here is really to be able to put a dent in these kinds of tragedies. I mean, ultimately, that's our end goal, is we don't want anybody else to suffer at the hands of a death fetish predator. And one of the ways we can do that is to link arms together as a nation and demand that lawmakers put real teeth in these federal obscenity laws. So we just implore our listeners to join us, link arms, like we said. And if you're listening today, Just commit to taking a stand against death fetish pornography and online forums. And you can do that in a really simple way. You can visit deepdarksecretspodcast.com. You just click on the advocacy button and you scroll down to the end of the page and you click on the button that says sign our petition. It's a simple process. It takes like 30 seconds. You just put in your email address and your name. You can even mark it anonymous if you don't want anybody else to see that you signed the petition. Just lawmakers on the back end will see it if you want to protect your identity. But if you sign that online petition, you're standing with Alicia and I, and you're telling us you're not alone. We support you and we want to work with you to stop violent porn. Yeah, every single signature makes a difference. So please go ahead and sign and share the petition with anybody who you think would link arms with us about this issue too. Anyone that you know would stand against the world of death fetish pornography. 
We'd also love it if you would share our podcast with people and say, hey, you need to hear about this. Look what these ladies are uncovering on the internet. Just share an episode on social media and help us spread the word about the dangers of death fetish. Until next time, friends, stay safe, stay alert, and keep your lights on. For exclusive content from this episode and all other episodes, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com backslash deep dark secrets. Sign up and you'll be able to see some visuals that accompany each episode.